Hello, everyone, and welcome. My name is Andrew. And I'm Rachel. And we are PTSD Podcast, brought to you by Aura Studios. We are a true crime podcast aiming to put you, the listener, at the scene of the crime. We bring you a new episode on a weekly basis, mainly focusing on lesser known crimes from the UK and Ireland. However, at times we expand into cases from anywhere in the world and all ones that are well known. Now, as we are a true crime podcast, listener caution is always advised. And today there is no exception, so please be aware. Now, if you like what you hear, please do follow us on whatever social media platform you prefer. Subscribe to us on your preferred podcast platform of choice. And if you have the capability, give us a rating and review as well. It does mean the world to us, doesn't it, Rach? Yeah, I feel like we need to give them a bit of a tick sheet. That was a lot uh, for our lovely, wonderful listeners to, to do. But absolutely, if you can, like and subscribe and also give that epic rating or, or you know, even a completely average one. Any rating counts. Um, <laughs> we would absolutely love it. Most definitely. And if you like us that much that you want to support us, you can do so for less than the price of a cup of tea of coffee on Patreon. We currently only have one tier, and that is set at £1 a month. We release bonus content every month. The links to our social medias and Patreon can be found in the show notes. Or visit patreon.com forward slash scenepod. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash s-c-e-n-e-p-o-d. And we actually, I'm going off piece already on my script here, but we just released yesterday the um, some exclusive content with Adam from UK2 Crime with a, with a nice little twist at the end. So if you want to know what that is, go and um, go and give subscribe. a subscription. Yes. Yeah, and like that was a really special recording for me. I was totally fangirling because Adam's one of my favourite uh, podcast hosts. Uh, UK True Crime is epic. Um, so, so yeah, that was a real like pinch me moment for me. And Andrew um, was quite uh, starstruck as well, I would say. Always, yes. So, but as well as the bonus content, we do where possible now release our episodes a week early for our patient supporters. So unlike Emmett Brown... You don't need to reach 88 miles an hour to hear us a week in advance. So, Rachel, how have you been since we last spoke? How was your knee? Oh, actually, Andrew, it's really funny you should mention that. It um, it reared its ugly head again. I was doing a jigsaw with my daughter and uh, kneeling on the floor, probably a bit smug, um, with with the fact that it had healed so quickly. And uh, and yeah, I've, it flared up again. But um, worry not, listeners, I've been icing and, and heat treating it. And um, I think it will live to play another hockey match. That's good to know. I did wonder when you started that story, I was thinking, how can you hit your knee doing a jigsaw? But I'm, I'm glad you expanded on that one. But basically, it's all part and parcel of uh, ageing. I'm not as able as I once was. I feel you there. How about you? How are you? Yeah, you know, I can't complain. We'll be recording this on a, on a Friday, so, you know, the weekend ahead. Is yeah, the weekend a good beckons. Thing. The question I have for you, though, more important oh, yeah. than how is your knee, is are you ready for some true crime? Oh, absolutely. But before we get into it... um as well as the UK True Crime um, collaboration, my Patreon um, episode went live this month. So for our lovely listeners thinking, I've been really lazy and not written a script um, to present in March. 
um it, it went on patreon but i'm doing the next one so i think it's the next one i feel like it's the next one i don't know you can do it now though no <laughs> might be the one after um but yeah it it's it's coming guys and the, feed, the feedback anyway. we've had from our patron supporters is that it's quite a sad story as well hmm. so it's worth a listen all right shall we get started then yeah let's go so today I'd like to take us back to January the 8th, which is a Monday, or it was a Monday, back in 2018. And we're in a town of Nailsea, which is in the county of Somerset. I used to live near there, actually. And it's got a population of around 15,000 people. It lies in between Bristol and Western Supermare. And it's not really notable for anything in particular. Oh. On this day in question, but it's a lovely place. On this day in question, we're looking at exactly 6.55am. And it was a cold but dry morning with the temperature around 1 degree Celsius, which is around 33 degrees Fahrenheit. And there was a bitterly cold 16 mile an hour westerly wind blowing, making it feel so, so much colder than it actually was. But we're not outside, Rach, this time. So it doesn't matter how cold the wind was. We're inside in a house in Brendan Gardens in Nelsea. And I'd like to introduce you to three people, a mother and her two sons. We have Claire Tavner who was 27, and her two sons, Rory, who was six, and Blake, who was three. Rory so, or Rory? Rory. Rory, okay. Yes. I thought Roy was quite a, an old man's name for no. 2018. But... So, the kids. Well, you know, kids will be kids. So they'd been up just over an hour, even though it was only 6.55 a.m. And because they'd woken up and then they'd gone downstairs to join their mum, Claire. So after an hour, so at 6.55am, which is where we know the exact time, Rory remembered what his mum had taught him, and he picked a phone up, and he dialed 999. His mum had taught him how to dial 999 and tell them his address in case anything went wrong at home, and this is what he was doing. And he's six, right? Yes, he's six, yes. What a boy, what a boy. Yes. When he spoke to the person on the other end of the phone, he told him he was phoning them because he thought his mummy was dead. <gasps> when asked why, he said that his mummy was covered in blood and him and his brother had been sat with her an hour and she wasn't moving. Andrew, I don't think I'm ready for this on a Friday morning. <laughs> it's okay, I don't want you lots of detail. Well, this did happen. Obviously, you know, a six-year-old couldn't tell exactly how long an hour was. So we don't actually know exactly how long the two boys had been sat with her. He was asked where his daddy was, and he said his daddy was out playing pool. And his exact words were, Daddy wouldn't have done this. While the recording was never released due to his age, those sections are sections that were recorded in court, so we can be safe knowing that he did say those things. The police and an ambulance were immediately dispatched and arrived at the home without delay. Upon arrival, the oldest, Rory, Rory's been able to phone the police up. He was able to answer the door and unlock it when the police arrived at this. And the scene they found, however, was terrible. Mm. Full credit to the boy. He actually managed to unlock and open the door for them as well. Do you know what, as well? I was just about to say, like, if I think about it, I do everything for my six year old. But I actually think if she was, if she really needed to, she would be diligent enough to, you know, unlock and open the door. I think I think there's um there's something in you, in your brain. I 
I don't really think it matters what age you are. It's that fight or flight mode, isn't it? Yes. Where you, you know, you, you may not have been able to run before, but all of a sudden you need to run and you, you, you know, you are picking up pace and building that speed. And I think for kids, it's, it's doing things that they watch their parents do time and time again, and they go into that autopilot mode and, and do it. And what, what an amazing kid. I can't, can't, can't imagine um, what it must, must've been like for him. And can I also just say like, at this point, we don't often give a lot of care and attention to the call handlers, but to be sitting in a call centre at 6.30 in the morning, you've just done a night shift and you've got a six-year-old on the phone, breaking your heart, telling you that he's been sat with his mummy, who's covered in blood for an hour. Yeah. What must go through their heads, I their know. minds? And they have to go home, don't they, and process yeah. all this absolutely and like and not know either because obviously the paramedics first responders and you know the police and all of that they they see the 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 scene playing out they know what happens those those um call handlers don't you know that's a very good point yeah that must really that can't sit well can it like yeah no it can't yeah so so yeah the scene the police found was terrible both the boys were in their pyjamas and their mum, Claire, was dead in the living room. As well as several defensive wounds, which showed Claire had proper fights, their mum had been stabbed ten times in the neck and chest with a wooden-handled rock knife, which could be found embedded in the arm of an armchair. A pair of wedding rings was found near her, and upon investigation, it was found that her bed hadn't been slept in which indicated that she had been killed at some point the night before. The ambulance crew took the two boys. They went and got them breakfast, and then they drove them to their grandparents' house, Claire's parents, where they have lived ever since. So who, yeah, so who was Claire, and what happened to her? Well, as I mentioned this a moment ago, Claire was 27. She was married to Andrew Taverner, who was a tree surgeon, and as well as being a full-time mum, Claire also worked in a pub local to her called the Old Farmhouse Pub. Claire was always active. She'd even completed one of those Tough Mudder courses. Do you know those courses? Yeah, I've seen them. Never I've seen them. quite brave enough to uh, participate, but uh, yeah, good on Claire. Yeah, and as well, she also enjoyed taking the boys outside to enjoy nature. She loved the children so much, as well as her family and friends, and... She was a light to many people in her life. Her family would later say that she was full of life and love for her boys, and they said that her sense of human ability to focus on the important things in life meant that she could cope with any situation with ease. So who would have done this? Well, let's move forward a tiny bit of time, maybe 10 or 15 minutes, and the police received another telephone call. This time, the caller reported seeing a man laying down on the railway track at a nearby train station in Nelson. When the police arrived, they found a man with a seriously damaged arm in a shelter at the train station. They called for an ambulance. They ascertained the person in question was Andrew Taverner, Claire's husband. And while they were waiting for the ambulance, they arrested Andrew on suspicion of murder. While they were arresting him, he stopped them and said, I just want to die. I just want to die. I just want to kill myself. He then said, when they said the word suspicion of murder, 
there's no suspicion about it. I did it. I mean, I was going to say when when you'd suggested that the kids remained with their grandparents from there on in, that obviously the husband's no longer on the scene either. Yeah. So he then went, yeah, he perfectly right. He then went on to tell the two policemen in a very calm manner that he had laid down in front of a train in order to commit suicide, but the train had missed his head and it got his arm instead. He then asked the policeman what he thought he was looking at and suggested to them maybe 20 years. So who was Andrew? Why had he killed his wife? I just left her body there for his two kids to find. I know. I mean, I'm I'm hoping, and that's not a very nice thing of me to say, but it's the only thing I can think of, that he's had some sort of mental breakdown. Um, because, God, you would have to be something that would have to be seriously wrong with you to be in a, a normal frame of mind and think that that is acceptable for your children to come down in the morning and find their mother like that. Exactly, yeah. But Andrew was a 45-year-old tree surgeon who was known for working hard but being family-orientated. Before this happened, people looked up to him. Even a member of Claire's family said it, but he looked up to him. His relationship with Claire... It wasn't without its problems, but the problems in the relationship all seemed to be of his own doing. They had been married in a big white wedding in April of 2013. And even though, even though, just remember this was at the start of January, so even though just a few days earlier they held a small New Year's Eve party at their home for a slight number of friends and family, all was not well within the home, Rachel. One of their neighbours, Tony Espito, that went to the party, would say this. It's very shocking. We spent New Year's Eve with the taverners, and there was not a single sign that there was any problems between the two of them. They are just a really nice couple with two really sweet young boys. The party was attended by quite a lot of their friends. We were invited to the party because our sons are the same age. It was a child-friendly event. I barely speak to Andy, but our wives get on, so I know him by association. We'd say good morning or afternoon when we'd see each other. I never heard him have any arguments or rowing, despite living two doors down. I'm just shocked. They moved in seven years ago. Their son Rory is the same age as one of my sons. The last we saw of them, they seemed like a really nice couple. But of course, Rachel, we all know that just because everything seems okay to an outsider looking in, it doesn't mean that it is, though, does it? No, no, absolutely. And I was going to say, how often do we hear that? Everything seemed fine. They never argued. You know, they they were the picture of, like, love. And it, it all too often makes me yeah. feel a bit better about the fact that, uh, you know, I do get annoyed and frustrated. Yeah, I think it's normal for everyone. So it seems, though, that even even though they held that part at New Year's Eve, the relationship was already over over. Over the years together, Andrew's drinking had become increasingly worse, drinking heavily and every day. Some three years earlier, in February of 2015, Claire had reported two separate acts of violence from Andrew towards her to the police. But ultimately, the pair had reconciled, so no action was taken. The first one was when he was punching her at the top of the stairs while she was holding her son, 
and he tried to push her down the stairs. And on the second occasion, Claire was with friends, and Andrew called them all bitches before telling them to shut up, and then he grabbed Claire by the neck and he lifted her up off the floor. I was going to say, she wasn't reporting him for the sake of herself, she was reporting him for the sake of her family, really, and her friends, because in that first instance, she's probably sat there thinking, if he's doing that when the child is in my hands, he's dangerous, like, it's not just me that he's putting at risk. And then when around her friends, there probably would have been an element of, you can't let him get away with that, you have to go to the police. Well, that's how you know when someone really doesn't care. When Because a lot of abusers try to hide it, don't they, in private mm-hmm. and stuff. If you're willing to do that in front of witnesses, you know that you've not well, it's got a healthy mind. Yeah. Really? yeah. And so, but while there's nothing reported or any record of anything happening after that, I very much doubt that it would, would have just been the end of the violent behaviour. As we know, though, don't we, Rach? Abusive behaviour is not just violence. It can be many other things as well. Yeah, Claire, definitely. Exactly. Claire's friends would report that Andrew would often accuse Claire of not keeping the house clean and tidy enough. And she often had to leave social events with her friends early so she could go home and prepare his meals for him. Oh, my God. So coercive control as well, like, yeah. you're put on this earth to make sure that I'm happy and... You shall sacrifice everything for my happiness. Exactly. Yeah, it shows massive size, doesn't it? Like it was yeah. abusive behaviour. And and the fact that she's telling her friends this as well, like not masking it, is a bit of a cry for help from her. Because like yeah. I'm sure for the first couple of years she'd have been like, Oh, I've had enough now I'm going home. But then, you know, latterly it would have been, if I don't go home, he's gonna get mad. So I best go home. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Now, Claire had sought advice from the Citizens Advice Bureau towards the end of the previous year on how to end their marriage, with her citing it was because of his out-of-control drinking. On the weekend prior to her death, so just a couple of days before, on the 6th, Claire would phone her dad and tell him that they were splitting up, that they, agreed to st- that they had agreed to stay together over Christmas for the sake of the kids, but when January started... Claire had told him that she was moving out. This is something, though, that Andrew denies. But I don't think, why would you tell your dad that if it wasn't true? Uh, Claire had intended to move into a flat above the pub that she worked at. Again, that can be verified. So she obviously yeah. did intend to move out. And, and that's the thing, like, the parents are the last people you tell because yeah. that's kind of like, there's no going back once you told your folks what's what's going on in the family home, is there? So, like... You know, she's telling her dad because things are coming into motion now. And it sounds to me, I obviously don't know for sure, but it sounds to me like Andrew was just in denial about that. Yeah, possibly. During an argument where she told him, when she basically told him she was moving out, it was reported that Andrew had tried to throw a TV out of the window and then had taken away her car keys to prevent mm-hmm. her from taking the kids away. On the morning of the 6th, the same day, Claire phoned her father to tell him that they were splitting up. Andrew had sat down with the kids and he told them that they were splitting up, even though the two of them had agreed not to tell the kids yet. Oh, wow. On the day before Claire's body was found, so it's, remember it's likely that she was killed that night 
not in the morning, the son phoned the police up. Yeah. Uh, so on a day before Claire's body was found, uh, Andrew had gone to play in a pool tournament in Weymouth, mm-hmm. with him starting to drink cider that morning on the way to the tournament. He told his friend that the relationship had been perfectly fine up to the six, which is obviously a lie, but perfectly fine up to the six, where Claire shocked him with the news the marriage was over and she was moving out. He told his friend that they had agreed it was pointless to wear their wedding rings anymore. He admitted to his friends that they had been having heated arguments the night before and that morning. It's probably worth noting, you're probably thinking, but you've just told me he denied that they were split up. He denied to the police that they were split up. But he told his friends this. So on that day, on the 7th, Claire spoke with her dad again on the phone. And she told him that Andrew was out playing pool and that she was home with the kids. Now, they spoke again on the 7th because Andrew had actually phoned Claire's dad up and told him that he'd have to take Claire back because she was moving out. And he told her dad that he would look after the boys until the last breath in his body. Concerned for her, Claire thought to reassure her dad by simply saying, don't worry, dad, he's just pissed. So later on that, I know. So later on that day, that night actually, Claire's dad texted her, and he sent her messages on Facebook asking her if she was okay, but she never responded. Concerned, he walked to her house, but he said everything appeared quiet and calm, and no one answered. So he went home. He said he returned the next day to be told that she was dead. So on the seventh, drunk by now. On the way home from his pool tournament, Andrew carried on drinking cider in the car, and him and his friend stopped in the railway inn pub in Bristol to carry on drinking. In the pub, Andrew admitted to his friends that he was going to get a big knife and kill her. What? Yes. He then admitted to his friend that he intended to go home and start a big argument with his wife. He is quoted as saying, if she goes on at me like she did this morning, I will fucking kill her. Hang on. <clears throat> so obviously that is a turn of phrase, right? Because yeah. I say it like in jest of like, he's left the dishwasher, the dishes out again. I'll kill him. And like that is not meant literally. But has he followed up that conversation with, I have a big knife, I'm going to fucking kill her to his friends? And if so... Why on earth weren't they straight on to the emergency services? No, they did report saying that he had a big knife, that he was going to get a big knife. So but I, it does, I, that yeah. doesn't sit with me. No, I don't know about you. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah, I agree. Well, see, the thing is, it doesn't sit right with me. But from all accounts, he was he had an alcohol problem. So possibly this might have been a usual thing for him to say. I don't know, but I'm just trying to think what would make you as a friend brush this off as something not serious. It'd have to be the fact that maybe he said it all the time. So, yeah, I guess it did look like he did exactly what he told his friend he would do. But obviously they didn't believe him. Um, Maybe they just thought he was upset and angry and drunk, but he wouldn't actually do it. I I don't know, Rachel, to be honest. And to add some further context, it seems that up until that day, the 7th, Claire had gone out every evening for the four nights previous. Now, I'm guessing 
if they'd agreed to stay together over Christmas just for the kids, and she knew that she was moving out, I'm guessing that she just did it to get away from him. But that's just an educated guess. So, but unfortunately, because she did this, he had gotten it into his head that she was cheating on him. So that was fueling his rage. Now, I use that term got into his head because that's the term he used. When he failed to kill himself, he actually ended up losing all of his fingers on his right hand. And he spent quite a while in hospital. Now, when he was in the hospital, he was quoted as saying to a nurse, I got it into my head that she was cheating on me. When he would be formally interviewed, however, though, he would say nothing. Just give him a no comment answer to all questions put to him. So while he did plead guilty, there was still evidence given to help the judge decide on the length of the murder sentence. It would be heard that Claire did struggle during the attack, but she would have died quickly. It then came out that Claire was vulnerable at home, that she had suffered a sustained attack. And there was, even though Andrew always denied it, clear evidence of controlling behaviour within the home, and at the very least of a verbal nature, but most likely violent as well. When Andrew's defence was putting his case forward for mitigating circumstances to reduce the length of the sentence, it was argued that arguments were over the arguments they had were over his drinking and her going out because he thought that it was in the boy's best interest that she stayed at home and that there was never any controlling behaviour. I think that statement in itself is controlling behaviour. You best yeah, stay like, at home with I'm the a, kids. Yeah. Yeah. I'm okay to go out. You stay at home with the kids. You stay yeah. at home with the kids. You're the woman. You don't work. Yeah. You know, I'll go out and have a great time. I know. I found it odd that a, a barrister would get up and say that in court, but he did. Uh, his defence argued the fact that he had pled guilty early, although he never spoke about it. He was remorseful, and he had previous good character. The defence did argue that there was obvious intent on Andrew's behalf to kill Claire, that they couldn't really deny that, but it should be taken into consideration that he had tried to kill himself at the house first before going to the train station, and as a result of what happened at the train station, he now... This is his defence attorney's word, his defence barrister's word. He now just had a mitten made of skin for a hand. That doesn't fully upset no, me, I'm Rachel. So- I'm sorry. You can't say, oh, please take into account the fact that he tried twice to kill himself. He killed his wife and left her to be found by his boys. And he'd also psychologically tortured her for God knows how long um, and trapped her in the home. So... Nothing can be taken into account and, you know, make a defence, um, make a prosecution or a jury feel sorry for him. Um, he lived by his actions. Yeah, exactly. Andrew, he also wrote a letter to the judge stating that he was sorry to his two boys and to Claire's family. He said that it was almost impossible not to think about what he had done and he wished he could turn back the clock. With, sure. He said that his recollection was too hazy, so he was at a loss to explain what happened. He recognised that he had been drinking too much, and he had convinced himself Claire was seeing someone else. He was bothered by the fact that she had been out for four consecutive evenings before he killed her. Again, like, as if that was grounds to kill someone. No, especially when she was seeing someone else, right? You know, you have carried on 
drinking knowing full well that when you drink you are not a nice person so even if she was seeing someone else like you, you've driven her to that they'd already agreed to split up hadn't they so well, it's yeah not... that too but yeah it's uh but anyway yeah so what he did do he agreed to sell his home the home and split the proceeds between his two children with claire and also a son he had from a previous relationship when sentencing him, the judge said, it is incomprehensible anyone would do that. Your conduct was utterly self-centred and unspeakably cruel. He would receive a life sentence because it was murder, with a minimum term of 16 years and 8 months in prison. So Rachel, I wanted to touch on this case because I was firstly of surprise he tried to deny his past behaviour, and also more surprised that he partially tried to blame Claire that her going out was making him think that he was being cheated on. And um, Are you surprised that you? Like, genuinely? Well, look, I'm, su- look I'm, surprised, I'm surprised that he said that. Like, I'm surprised that his defence team didn't advise him not to say that. I'm not surprised that he thought that. I'm surprised I, that he used it as a defence in court. As I bet. I bet he has been told his whole life that whatever he goes after he is capable of achieving, right? And when the time comes and he realizes that he can't control and go after his wife and make her behave the exact way that he believes she should, he's lost control and he's killed her, right? And now he's living a privileged life where if he says sorry and if he tries to claim that, you know, she basically provoked him, she's not around to defend herself. So the prosecution and the jury are going to think, oh, that's a really interesting point. This poor man, you know, was provoked and it's not his fault. So let's reduce his murder charge or, or you know, however he felt that was going to play out. Yeah. And he, he's, he's probably been privileged enough his whole life um, and always got what he's wanted. So he's, he's played that card. And even when you were telling me that he's in hospital telling this nurse, you know, I thought she was cheating on me. He is trying to play the sympathy card with the nurse. Worse of control, you know, poor me. You know, this this is what I was driven to because I thought she was being promiscuous. Like, did that nurse have the full story that, you know, he had been controlling her his whole life uh, or their, their life together? And that at Christmas she said, enough's enough, I'm leaving you. In context, that nurse probably would have gone, rightly so. If she is seeing someone else, she knows her worth, you know. But he's yeah. he's he's playing out this story, and he honestly believes he's the victim, and it happens so often. And the fact that I yeah, I agree, and also the fact that like I didn't include him, but the train driver's comments that would have stayed with the train driver. But if he really wanted to kill himself by laying in front of the tracks, there's no way it was going to miss his head. And the fact that the comments that he said to the police when they arrested him, when he said, what am I looking at, about 20 years, means that he was calm. It means that he wasn't, he didn't have a psychotic break or anything. He'd thought about it and he thought about the consequences. And, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me, again, I'm, this is my opinion, no basis in fact whatsoever, but it wouldn't surprise me if he tried to weigh up the thought of, well, if I damage myself, by losing a few fingers, maybe he didn't intend to lose all his fingers, but if I damage myself by losing a few fingers, that will yeah. knock a few years off. 
and I'll in be the grand scheme of things yeah. yeah I'll be the victim everyone will think oh gosh you know he really didn't mean to do what he did and he's actually suffering with his mental health so we'll put him in a site you know um like a, a unit where he's not in with general population and can be found to be like the true awful person that he really is and as well like let's be honest he was premeditated in so many ways by leaving those leaving that body with his children you know he's damaged their lives as well you're not going to forget finding your mum at six years of age and 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 processing all the information that they had to process in that period of time for as long as they were with her you know he's had a lasting effect on his kids yeah as well and i think that that was his kind of like last like pinch of control is you know i fucked her up i'll fuck the kids up too yeah and then at the end saying it home so he can he can twist it by saying but look i've just given them each a third of what the house costs so i'm I'm being a good dad that way yeah again it's screaming to me that he has this whole i'm actually a saint kind of aura about him um yeah and it, it it's it's making me really mad yeah i i agree completely so i guess we've said what we feel about the case um mm. yeah he'll get out eventually won't he what was 45 how long did so... he get sorry 16 years and eight months which is a pretty i'm guessing it's 16 years and eight months that would have been a deduction of his early guilty plea which is why it's mm. not a full year but so he'll be out when he's in his early 60s probably so he'll be out before his youngest son is 20 that shows you that is that That's helps you probably really put into it. context doesn't it yeah mm. it is nothing he's taken the life of their mother they're going to grow up without like a mother and a father so it, it could was... be yeah it, it could be the case that He's obviously going to destroy him. I mean, to be fair, her parents, well, I think, I believe her dad lives with, um, no, biological mother, but her, the, the her parents as such, they look like they're doing a great job on looking after the looking after the two boys. They took them on and they're bringing them up. But the boys' lives won't be the same. They won't have the same childhood. And if he does get out when they're in their early 20s, there's probably knowing his his um think thought processes, he's probably gonna try and reach out and have contact with them. So he'll probably destroy the early adulthood as well as the childhood as well. You know what as well? There'll be an element of him trying to convince them that they didn't realise what his mum was like. Yeah, well. no one knows. And if I was those if I were those children, I'd be steering well clear and keeping the memory of my mum like pristine and you know keeping my dad where he belonged in a bad you know box of he yeah. he, you know it's everyone else's fault definitely not mine's sons you don't know why i had to deal with that's nothing anyone will want to hear but i know i appreciate we are making massive assumptions there and he we might are. be um you know prison his prison sentence might help uh rehabilitate him and and see and identify what an awful human he was for for carrying out those actions as well. We, so we can but hope. Well, if 
everyone disagrees with us or agrees, let us know. Mm. But shall I wrap this up then? Yes. Okay, so this has been Season 2, Episode 23, called Dangerous Delusions. And for one last time, if it's safe you to do so, I'd like you to relax. Close your eyes and picture the scene. Most of us have had that one friend, or maybe we still have that one friend, that drinks far too much, far too often, and comes out with statements that they're going to set the world to rights, usually by violence towards another, and we tend to just brush it off, as we've heard it far too often. Is it time that we start taking these drunken threats seriously? So Mm -hmm. thank you all. Yeah, thank you guys, and thank you Andrew for bringing us that case. No problem. Until next time, stay happy. Indeed. Bye.